Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. So, here we go. Um, I want to start this morning by reading, you know, in light of the political atmosphere that's going on, and, you know, the Republican National, you know, Convention coming, and, and the de- you know, all this kind of stuff, I've written a letter to my senator I'd like to read to you, if I could just start there. You're incredibly crazy. You're fun. You're surprising. In my FYI paper, I started out with Jeremiah 29.11, but I forgot how exactly it was written. So I traipsed home to get my Bible, and I lugged it back to the computer lab. When I opened it to that verse, I found a beautiful note from my faithful friend. Thank you so much. Once again, you have made me smile. Big surprise, right? You know what would be great? If you had access to email when you were at home for Christmas. My family just got it, and it would be, stupe- it would be a stupendous way to keep up to date on your life and, uh, and, and when you return home from the holidays. Anyways, I went to a meeting with my English professor. I got an A. And on my final paper, on my journal, and, and on my journals, which most likely brings me to an A in that class. What a great feeling. I have about a fourth of a page left to write, and then I'll be finished with that paper, completed with that gosh-forsaken, lengthy paper. I hope you have a great day, your angelic redhead, Laura. So you might be really confused at this point, right? Because I set this up as a letter to my senator which, of course, became pretty clear quickly that it wasn't, in fact, a letter to my senator, right? If you haven't put two and two together, my wife's name is Laura. This is a letter that she wrote to me back in the day. And I left out a few juicy details for the sake of, <laughs> for the sake of church, you know, this morning and whatnot. How about that, though? If, if you had access to email, friends, I went to college when we didn't have access to email. So I'm 35 now. Thank you very much. Um, But here's the thing. Why would I start this way? Because it's my contention that if we don't understand the context of something, the context in which something was written or the context in which something was said, we run a great risk of misinterpreting and misunderstanding that which was said or written. Right? So if I set this up and say this is a letter to my senator, then the lens through which you see this letter or hear this letter, experience this letter, has all kinds of qualifications and assumptions But when in fact the letter is not to my senator, but it's different than that, then how you interpret what's said actually gets uh, skewed very, very quickly. You follow? Everyone follow, right? So the context in which we read something is absolutely critical. And I would submit to you that the same would be true for the scriptures. When we attempt to read a book of the Bible, and we're starting this new series on 1 John. When we open up the scriptures and we're going to read it, if we are to understand anything that's written, the context of which it's written in and from is absolutely critical and important. Uh, If you're going to understand something, if you're going to understand the scriptures and apply them to your life, you can't just pick it up and read it willy-nilly. Right? I know that the Bible is, is inspired by God and it's divinely given to us as the church and we can read it and understand it, and I think that's all a great idea. When you have the right tools to open the scriptures and read them. So if you read the book of Revelation like you read the book of Genesis, you're going to have a serious problem really, really quickly because these are two completely different genres of literature, right? This is divinely inspired, yes, and it's also literature, and it's written with particular rules and regulations, so to speak. So when we read the scriptures, we have to understand the context. Furthermore, as we enter this study on 1 John, 
if we read this as, a, as something from Paul, right? It's a New Testament book. 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul. And you and I, most likely, I'm guessing, the majority of the people in the room come from somewhat of a Protestant background. And we, we owe this great debt of gratitude to, to Paul and to others who uh, were a part of the Reformation. I have some good Lutheran friends over here. Thank you, Luther. Um, so we owe this debt of gratitude. And, and honestly, honestly, friends, when we read the scriptures, we don't even realize it sometimes, but we read it with a very Pauline lens when we read New Testament passages. And much of the New Testament was written by Paul, but not all of it. And I love Paul. I got nothing against Paul. I think Paul is fantastic. When I see him on the other side of glory, I'm going to say, man, you are cool, right? You got it. 13 books. I mean, this guy was, he was amazing. But here's the thing. When Paul wrote, when he writes... He writes with an agenda and a particular purpose. So when he writes the book of Romans, it's, very, it's like a law court setting and everything's about proving this and using these detailed, nuanced arguments to prove a point. So if we walk up to 1 John and we start reading with that in mind, we're going we're gonna to be far afield very, very, very quickly. So when we come to a book of the Bible, there are a few questions that I think are key to understanding. And as we begin this study in 1 John, it's going to be a while, friends. Buckle up, settle in. This one's going to take a while. Uh, I don't actually know how long it's going to take. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to do this one, not literally verse by verse, but idea by idea. And so we'll be on verses 1 to 4 next week, and 5 to 7 the next week, and 8 to 10 the next week. And then from there, we'll see how it goes, right? Um, planning is not a huge strength of mine. I like to fly by the seat of my pants. So, when we open up a book and we're about to read it, there's a couple of key questions that we should ask, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's where we're going to spend our time. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? When did they write it? Who, who got it? And why did they receive it? And what was going on in their context and culture? And now, I recognize that this may be a bit educational, and it may be, uh, you know, it may lack a little bit on the, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of uh, rah-rah, uh, inspirational, but it's absolutely important, and here's why. These will be anchors that we will come back to over and over and over again. So the things that we discussed this morning, the things that we offer this morning, as we study First John, we're going to recirculate these ideas over and over back into the text because it's going to help us to understand what we're reading. So if you would, turn to First John. If you aren't already there, it's in the, the end of your, uh, the, your Bible, towards the, the back it's right at the end, actually, right before Revelation. And it's not too long, so that's good. Who wrote the book of 1 John? Now, a couple of theories on this. And if you read, uh, we could do a study that would last weeks and weeks and weeks on who actually wrote the book of 1 John, because there are many scholars that believe it wasn't the John who wrote the gospel, and they have all kinds of different reasons. I would say the most widely accepted scholarship would be that the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote the book of 1 John, and for our purposes, as we study it, that's what we're going to assume, and there's a couple of reasons why. The person who writes 1 John actually writes in first person. So when they speak and they write, though they use the proverbial we at times, for the most part, they speak in first person. So this is an individual who's writing, not on behalf of a collective or on behalf of a people, but as a person writing to a group of people. Um, also, the language in 1 John, if you were to compare the, first, the, the, the ideas and the themes and the language, even the, the, the technicalities of the Greek from 1 John to the Gospel of John, there's enough similarity and there's enough to go on where you could build a pretty strong case that this is the same person who's writing. And if not the same person, at the very least, somebody who had access to John and used it as inspiration, as we'll see in just a second. Uh, 
This person who writes 1 John writes as an eyewitness. So when they write, they write as a person who has actually seen, touched, experienced the Christ event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So they write not as somebody who is a second-hand or a third-hand or somebody who's heard about this, but somebody who's actually seen it and been a part of it. Last, I would say that the, the, the church fathers that have come before us of the 2nd and 3rd century and on would agree, a guy named Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Dionysus of Alexandria, a number of these people all can attribute 1 John to the Gospel of John. Now, why is this important? Turn in your scriptures back to John, the Gospel, to the left, if you will, of where you, where you were. Hold your finger in 1 John. Um, and this isn't going to be on the screen, I don't think, so you may want to actually turn there if you have your Bibles. You're all looking at me, waiting for the screen, but it's not happening. It's not coming. Here's what 1 John reads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, scoot back to 1 John, the first chapter, and let's read what John writes. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, have touched, that we, that this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to it, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Does this sound anything like what we just read in John? It's not a trick question. The answer is yes, right? If you hold the two up against one another, they look eerily familiar and very, very similar. The word that was from the beginning, the word of life, the logos, these things, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, all very, very similar things. So why does authorship matter? Because sometimes we can hold up one text against another and we can see, okay, there's similarities here. So the themes that come through in this book also come through in this book if you look closely. Uh, if you... If you if you're reading a book that wasn't written by the same person and you look back and you find themes that are, are similar. So let's say you're reading a New Testament epistle and you look back and you're like, man, this sounds eerily similar to, say, the book of Mark. If you dig a little bit more, more often than not, what you'll find is that the person who wrote that book had access to Mark and they used it as, as inspiration for what they wrote. So authorship matters sometimes. It, it doesn't matter a great deal in others. Um, when did... John write it. And this doesn't matter as much for us, but sometimes it does. For example, in the book of Revelation, many people believe that the book of Revelation was written and the events in the book of Revelation actually have less to do with the end times, something that's to happen later at a later date. And actually, some scholars would say that what John was talking about in the book of Revelation had to do with the destruction of the temple in AD 70 when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem. So date matters sometimes because if, if that's your theory on who wrote Revelation and why they wrote it and what, how, you, how you interpret Revelation then, if it, if it was written before the book or the, the destruction of Jerusalem, then of course you could use that as a theory if it was written after. So sometimes date really, really matters. In our case, it doesn't really hang on anything. Most scholars would say that it was written in about 90 AD. So we have John, and we're going to say the Apostle John, who wrote the gospel, also wrote John, 1 John in somewhere around the turn of the century, 90 or so AD. Now, who received it? And this gets into a little bit of the text of 1 John and some of the things that we'll begin to study. Um, I'm going to show a map up here. If you want to throw that up there for me, that would be awesome. Um, boy, it gets bright in here when you do that. 
more than likely, this was a book that was written not to a particular person, not to a specific person. The book of Luke, for example, is written to a person named Theophilus, a one, one recipient who got the book. First John, John, on the other hand, is very, very different. Most likely, it was circulated to a group of churches near and around the city of beep, boop, Ephesus, right here. So this is what you would call Asia Minor in here. So Jerusalem's down here. Uh, Egypt and, and North Africa is here. So everybody's tracking where we are. Now, interestingly, the book of 1 John, if you attribute it to John the Gospel writer, and then you also attribute Revelation to, first, to the guy who wrote this book, the book of Revelation in the first three chapters, does anybody know what happens in the first three chapters of Revelation? He writes letters to what? Seven churches, right? Ironically enough, same area right in here. Now, little known fact that there's an ancient Roman postal route that happens to go in the same direction and in the same order that the letters to the churches in Revelation were written to. So John, being a smart guy that he is, is thinking, how do I get this letter out to these people? And he thinks, well, how about the post? How, how about Cliff Clavin, for crying out loud, right? We'll send it with Cliffy. He'll get the job done. So he sends it on an ancient Roman postal route in this area. And in fact, the book of 1 John was a letter that was written to a number of churches that John was a pastor to or had a pastoral um, affection towards. And it circulated in the same general area that the book of Revelation did. Now, why did he write this? There are a few themes that rise to the top of 1 John, and we'll go through a couple of them here in a second. But why did John write this? If, if, yeah, keep that map up there for me, if you would, Eric. Why did he write this? If you look at an area of, of, of a map, and you ask historians to tell you what was going on in that particular time period, often they can tell you this, they can answer this question. What are the things that were happening in culture? What are the, what are the ideologies and the beliefs that were rising up out of culture in this particular time and place? And these things that were rising up in this area right here become absolutely critical. I would argue they become the key by which we understand and interpret 1 John. And if you miss these, if you don't get this, what was going on in that culture and at that time, then you miss out on everything that John's doing in the book. So we'll get to that in just a second. The themes that rise up out of this are as follows. John says, uh, do right, avoid sin, uh, love your neighbor. So there's a group of people that John is writing in response to. John's a pastor. He's someone who has a relationship with these people in this area. And he's writing to them because he wants them to know something. He wants them to affirm something. He wants them to be reminded of something because there's a group of people in their midst who are being influenced by the ideologies of the day who are beginning to preach a gospel that is essentially void of some fundamental basics of what it means to follow Jesus. So he says... Do right, avoid sin, love your neighbor. This is one theme that rises. This group of people that, that John's refuting uh, are, are kind of known among scholars as cessationists, right? You remember when we became a nation and people tried to secede and they tried to do their own thing? Same kind of an idea. This is a group of people who were part of the church, the early church, people who were following Jesus and being influenced by the ideologies of their day started preaching a gospel that lost some fundamental basics that John was like, ho, ho, red flag, red flag, hang on. If you lose this, you lose the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. If you lose this, then you lose this and you can't lose that. So John says here, do right, avoid sin, 
love your neighbor. The cessationists were basically teaching that you can have intimacy with God, follow Jesus, and really kind of do your own thing, right? If it's okay for you, then it's okay for you, and it's okay for you, then it's okay for you. You can kind of do whatever you want to do, and you can still have intimacy, fellowship with God. Does that sound anything like our culture? I think it does. I don't know about you. So John writes, and he says, listen, to follow Jesus is to assume that there is a way by which we are to live, that there is an ought, as C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity. There's an ought, there's a, uh, a should, for lack of a better term, that there's a way in which God made the world, created the world, and invites us to live. That would be what the Hebrews call shalom, peace, harmony, right? Flourishing, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. This is the way God made the world. John assumes that to follow Jesus means that you believe that there is an ought, There's a way by which you should live. And to live outside of that is what we call sin. What we would call going against the grain of what God intended for creation. Call it whatever you want, but to live outside of the way God intended. John says, listen, you can't do that. If you follow Jesus, then you you inextricably connect yourself to this belief that there is an ought. That there is a way by which we were created to live. And if you lose that, then you lose a, a, a fundamental piece of the gospel. So he says, do right. Avoid sin if you follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, you can't treat your neighbor like crap. You can't do that. You can't say, I follow Jesus, and then oppress your neighbor or extort them or charge them more than they should for the, wage, for the work that they do or any number of other things. You can't do that and follow Jesus. Th- those two things are diametrically opposed to one another. So one of the themes that rises up out of John is this group of people who are teaching, yeah, you know, it's kind of like whatever you want, do willy-nilly sort of deal, and Jesus, but we just say Jesus. And John says, listen, it's more than that. And if you lose that, then you lose a fundamental theological understanding of what it means to follow him, that there is a way by which we are created to live, and to live outside of that is actually anathema. It's sin. It's, it's not a good idea. So John highlights that. Another theme that rises up out of John is this idea that Jesus is human. That Jesus is actually, that, the, that, the, that, that this is not a, 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 it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. Aesop, had, he hadn't been around yet, right? This is, this is a real dude who lived, who had flesh and blood, bones, sweat, the whole deal. He was born like the rest of us, kind of. You know, immaculate conception. But he, after that, born like the rest of us, And he's a real human being. So in response to the cessationists who were teaching that, you know, Jesus, he kind of merely suffered. He he, he wasn't a, a he kind of appeared to suffer and he appeared to be crucified and and appeared to resurrect from the, the dead. But it wasn't actually a real human being like it was you and me. And John says, no, listen, In response to this teaching concerning the person of Jesus, he insists that the humanity of Jesus is central. The humanity of Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate God-man, that this is essential to what it means to follow Jesus. And he insists on it over and over and over again. Because if you lose this, you lose something that's fundamentally true about what it means to follow Jesus and be a part of this new family of God in Jesus. So John says, do right, avoid sin, love your neighbor. He says, Jesus is absolutely human. And and one other theme that rises up out of this book is uh, related to baptism and atonement. 
So baptism, as far as we can go back and understand it from a scholarly perspective, it's always about inclusion. It's always about identification. And to this day, I would argue it still is. It's about inclusion and identification. That if I'm baptized, then I identify with this group of people or I identify with this person. John says that Jesus came not only by water, but by blood. What does he mean by that? And we'll unpack it more later. But essentially, it means that Jesus' work is not merely about identification. It's not just about identifying, i.e., the Old Testament laws of circumcision. I identify based on this ritual that I'm a part of this group of people. He actually says Jesus' death on the cross has, yes, something to do with inclusion and, and identification, but it actually has something to do with atonement. It has something to do with a work that Jesus does on the cross on behalf of humanity for you, for me, and, it, and, and it's essential. And if you lose that, you lose something that's essential to what it means to know Jesus and know God. So he says Jesus comes by water and by blood, and he's talking about the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, let me finish this little intro up by saying a couple of things. The, there's two, two ideologies that I want to put forth this morning as we kind of close because these two things, I would submit to you, everything that John responds to in the book of 1 John comes out of an understanding of what these things are because he's, actually, he's, he's specifically refuting some of these, uh, the things that he's specifically refuting, I would submit, find their home, at least you can trace their roots back to these two things one of these two things, if not both of them. The first is Gnosticism. Uh, we've talked about this before. And Gnosticism is, uh, it comes from a Greek word gnosis, which means to know or knowledge. And essentially it's this. It's a teaching that the realization or this gnosis, uh, this intuitive knowledge, is the way to salvation of the soul from the material world. That's a critical distinction. So it's the way by which the soul is saved from the material world. Uh, these group of people, they believe that um, the world was created through this intermediary being. They call it a demiurge, rather than directly by God. And in most of these systems, this demiurge was seen as imperfect, and in others, even seen as evil, many of whom believe that matter was evil, and as a result, God would not take on a material body. Now, this may sound like intellectual blah, blah, blah. This is so important to our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, as well as our, our ability to understand John when he speaks. Gnostics believed that there were two categories in the world. The spiritual, the soul, and the material, the body. And essentially, that one was created by God and the other wasn't. And therefore, the heightening or the... the, the, the um, importance of the soul and the spiritual became absolutely paramount and the material became something that you could either just deny yourself of or indulge at any cost. It didn't matter because it, it, in the end, it, it didn't last, right? So there was, this there was this division between sacred and secular, spiritual and material, the soul and the body. I just, and I, man, I'm so mad that I, list, I listened to this song the other day, one of my favorite bands, and he wrote this song, and I get it, it's like, you know, kind of this classic, uh, you know, rock thing, going back to the roots, you know, the south, the whole deal, and the, and the chorus goes like this, the, you know, if the devil comes my way, like, I'm going to tell him to his face, you can steal my body, but you cannot steal my soul. That's Gnostic. That's a Gnostic belief of humanity and the way in which God made the world. Do you see the, it's just very, very subtle, right? I'm going to tell the devil, you can steal my body, 
but you can't steal my soul, which is to say my body isn't going to last, but my soul is, which is to say that my body, it can go because what Jesus really redeems is my soul, this thing that will float away to heaven somewhere else. That is not biblical, my friends. It's just not. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Read the book of Galatians. Read Paul for crying out loud. The whole time he talks, he's talking about the importance of resurrection. He's not using it as a code word for something else. He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying that if Jesus, who was the newly human, the second Adam, if he was resurrected from the dead in this newly glorified state, that those who are in Christ will also be resurrected from the dead. So this may sound like intellectual gobbledygook that you're like, okay, that's interesting for seminary people, but get this. Gnosticism was a heresy that the church refuted in the third and fourth century. In fact, most of the creeds that, we've, that we now recite came from groups of people who got together and said, this has got to go because it's not biblical, because it demeans the way in which God made the world and the way in which we are created as human beings. And it, and it diminishes the beauty of creation and, and the goodness of flesh and blood. And it takes away the power of the incarnation. If you do this, if, if we filter the scriptures through this, what does the incarnation, the incarnation mean? Nothing. It's just a flower. It's connected to a flower that nobody likes anyways. Sorry if you like carnations. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be here all week. So Gnosticism is an important category for us to understand. And when John speaks and he refutes things and he says, you should listen up, friends, very carefully, this is always in the background. Always, always, always. Now, what comes from this, and it, and it has to do with the incarnation, is a belief called docetism. Docetism uh, comes from a Greek word that means to seem, right? So if, 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 if we give pri primacy to spiritual and we kind of lesser than the physical things, then it would, it would follow that Jesus' physical body was an illusion, as was his crucifixion. That is to say, Jesus only seemed to have a physical body and physically die. But in reality, in pure spirit, hence he could not physically die. Do you see what happens if we go this route? The work of Jesus on the cross, right? The epicenter, the pinnacle, the fulcrum, the focal point of the story of God gets diminished to sort of this, you know, fairy tale-ish kind of, well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. It was, it was, an, it was an imagination. It was kind of a, you know, a, a, a mirage, so to speak. And there's a group of people wandering around in the towns that John was pastoring in saying essentially this, that Jesus' death on, and resurrection from the cross were merely an appearance. And I would submit to you this morning that that, when, when we say that and when we even step towards that, we lose one of the most fundamental pieces of the gospel, which is the humanity of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross. If we lose that, we are no longer Christian. You no longer follow Jesus. You no longer understand the story of God as it's told in the scriptures. So, this is big. This is, this is absolutely paramount. So these are a few of the things that rise up from John. Now, we, as I really, I wrap this thing up and I close this thing, we could go down the road of like, let's talk about the Gnostic tendencies and the docetic tendencies in our culture and kind of, you know, put them together and say, oh, we probably shouldn't do these things. I'm not going to do that. We'll, we'll do that later. I want to offer an encouragement to you and I want to offer a, uh, maybe an exhortation, right? John's a pastor and he had a pastor's heart. And so when he speaks, he does so from that 
position. And so this morning, I want to end by giving sort of an, a pastoral encouragement because outside of my family, right, my wife and my three kids, um, this is the most important thing in my life. And I love you guys. Uh, I value you, and I'm so excited about what God is doing here. So I want to offer just a brief encouragement, exhortation as we close. Um, Awaken, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you will know that Awaken is growing. Um, we're, I mean, look around, right? There's not a lot of empty seats in here. You should know that our nursery, which is next door, a couple weeks ago had eight babies in it. If you've been over there, you know that's full. Like, we, shouldn't, we should not put any more babies in there, okay? So stop doing whatever you're doing, okay? There are other things. Friday and Saturday, holy sexuality, okay? Uh, next door in our kids' community, uh, we've had as many as 18 to 20 kids in there. That's full. This room seats like 150, 160 people. We've had 130 in here. Bottom line is it's full. Here's the thing. God is doing something at Awaken, right? We can testify to this because two people have decided to raise their own support and be a part of this because they believe that God is up to something here. We have a guy who works for free to be here. He, they, could, they could go elsewhere. Many of you could go elsewhere, but you keep bringing your friends because God is doing something at Awaken. And that's okay. And we can name that and we can, we can say, God is doing something at Awaken. Now, when change happens, often... Uh, when change happens, often anxiety comes, and when anxiety comes, misunderstanding comes, and when mis misunderstandings come, conflict happens. And so I want to just, I wanna just uh, maybe preemptively say, friends, this will not always be the way it is. And that's okay, because growth causes change. And so we're, you know, uh, as leaders trying to figure out how do we do this, do we go to uh, two gatherings, when do we do them? Uh, all, of the, all of the things, and this, that's not, I don't want you to get into the details of it, but all of the ways in which we could figure out how do, we, how do we move with God as God moves. And that will bring about change, and change will bring anxiety, and anxiety will bring misunderstanding, and, and misunderstanding often brings conflict. And I want to just say, as a community, can we covenant together to behave as people who follow Jesus? So when there are things that you need to talk to with someone, that you go to the person that that's involved with that conversation. Uh, often we think, oh, uh, let's, uh, I, I should probably talk to this person, but I just want to make sure, I want to make sure that I'm not crazy, right? I just want to bounce it off somebody else. Okay, I get it, I've done it, but I want to just warn us. I want to I encourage us and exhort us that gossip and, uh, and is not something that, Paul nor any other New Testament writer talks fondly of. And the way by which we encourage and the way by which we do life together and grow together is communicating with one another and being honest with one another and being authentic with one another. And this is, this is part of the DNA of Awaken, which is a beautiful thing. But I want to just say, as your pastor, life together uh, is good and God's doing something here. And we're going to grow together, and that will bring change. And I want to invite us to remember that, that we go to one another in love, that we go to one another um, giving the other the benefit of the doubt, that we go to the, and, and I, I literally am the recipient of this, okay, of grace and of forgiveness and of mercy. And this is the way by which we do life together. Um, God's up to something here, and I am so excited about that. Uh, I could go, I could, I'm, I'm done. And Ben's, Ben's looking at me like, you're done, dude, you're done. 
But I, I, could, I, I could share story after story after story after story of people in, in this community this morning who have written me and told me I had given up on Jesus, I had given up on church, I didn't think it existed, what I saw in here, and I think I see it at Awaken, and I've experienced it at Awaken. And for me, uh, payday, right? Uh, I could do this for free. If I could make it work, I would do it for free. Um, because it's that beautiful, and it's that encouraging, um, and I'm that excited about it. So, buckle up. We're going to be in First John for a while. I'm excited uh, to walk with you guys. Let me pray. I'm going to invite Ben back up, and we're going to just spend uh, our time in closing, um, singing together and uh, continuing to worship. So pray with me if you would. God, we want to, uh, first and foremost, I want to thank you for um, your word, for the scriptures, which um, were written by this collection of people, uh, who were inspired by you to say something about who you are and the way in which you have interacted with and revealed yourself to humanity, to creation. And God, as we study First John, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would, um, by your Spirit, be doing something in us, uh, gr- drawing us closer to you, uh, bringing us near to your heart and what it means to follow you. And I pray, God, that John would be an encouragement to us, that this pastor who spoke to this, these churches so long ago would rise up out of the pages of these scriptures and speak to us now. By your Holy Spirit, would it be true, we pray. Find us online at www at electioncommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter and Facebook community. See you next time.